you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find it printed for you in your bulletin. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. As I do every time I preach, just want to remind you, this is God's Word. This alone has the power to change your heart, to change your mind. So if you hear anything at all this morning, please, please hear this. Now the Spirit expressly says, time will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know all the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected as if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we can go and reflect on your word, that we can um, consider what it has to teach us. Lord, I pray that um, as we go now to this time of reflection and teaching, Lord, that you um, give me boldness to say what needs to be said and wisdom to know what needs to be left unsaid. Be with us, Father. It is in your son's precious holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I was loud. Uh, There once was a man by the name of Dr. John Wilson. Uh, He began practicing medicine in the eastern U.S. in 1818. Uh, But if you were to Google the man, you would find no pictures because it was 1818. Um, But if you were to Google him, you might find a series of comments made by his patients. Um, They were particularly cruel, most of them, because they mostly focused not on his bedside manner, which was generally impeccable, um, or the, the, his ability to actually heal bodies, but um, his patients often commented about his misshapen body. Um, one particularly cruel comment was he looked as if he was smuggling baseballs underneath his suit. Um, some also cruel comments comment, commented about his very pro- pronounced limp that he had, um, and he, they warned future patients that said, hey, don't mention his limp, because if, if you do, he kind of shuts down. He gets mad. Um, so they, they kind of warned people about um, bringing any of this stuff up to him. Uh, but just before he died, just before Dr. Wilson died, um, he made a very strange request to his friends. He said, can you please bury me without removing my suit? Uh, his friends, thinking this was some kind of misplaced um, modesty on Dr. Wilson's part, um, agreed. Um, and then a few weeks later, Dr. Wilson died. Um, and then once the friends took him to the mortician to be preserved, um, the mortician explained, hey, that's actually impossible. Um, I can take his suit off and we can bury him in the suit, but we can't we, like, to do all that we need to do. Like we have to, re- we have to remove his clothes to embalm him and do all this other stuff. And his friends were like, oh, that's a, I guess that's a sufficient compromise that he'd be buried in the suit that he was wearing when he died. Well, as the mortician began his, his, the whole embalming process, um, he was surprised to find that Dr. Wilson was covered in scars, covered in scars from what looked like knife wounds um, as well as bullet holes. Um, he found that, the, that Dr. Wilson, um, though no one knew it, actually had a completely withered leg um, that was the result of a, a bullet that caught like a, one of his arteries or something. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. Some of y'all know that, how this works. Um, you talk to one of those doctors in the, the congregation afterwards to figure out how this works. But it caught like a, a vein or an artery, um, and it caused his leg to wither because there wasn't sufficient blood flow. Um, this spurred a, a search of Dr. Wilson's house, um, and they found in the walls... Um, stashes upon stashes of stolen watches, uh, jewelry, diamonds, um, and various other personal items. 
The police then obviously launched an investigation into the life of Dr. Wilson, and they found out that Dr. Wilson was actually an infamous Australian bush ranger. Um, I, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I, I promise you. This is real life, this is, this is not a Marvel movie, no matter how great of a Marvel movie it would have been. Um, he, w he went by the name Captain Thunderbolt. Captain Thunderbolt, who was the son of another infamous Australian bush ranger called, and I'm probably gonna butcher this word, indefatigable. So, you know, they liked their nicknames back then. Uh, but Captain Thunderbolt had been caught by the Australian authorities and, and sometime previously before 1818 had escaped and made his way to the U.S. His misshapen body was the result of him wearing three suits in order to make himself seem stockier and taller. Um, the, the watches, the jewels, the diamonds, they were actually the property of his various patients that he had pickpocket, pickpocketed and stolen from their houses as he treated them. Uh, needless to say, Dr. Wilson's friends were shocked to find out that their mild-mannered uh, doctor friend was actually an Australian outlaw. Uh, he had fooled them for years, for years, with a made-up story in just three suits. Uh, he was not who he said he was. And this is what Paul is warning Timothy about in our passage this morning. Not Australian outlaws, no, like that's not the point, but the falling away of people who aren't really who they say they are. Paul has spent some time in his letter before this, in the, the previous three chapters, he spent time dealing and instructing Timothy, um, instructing Timothy how to lead a church, how to, how to lead a church. And now at chapter four, we get to probably what is the most difficult situation that Timothy would have to deal with and what is probably the most difficult situation that the, the modern church deal, deals with, and that is how do we deal with heresy of people who claim Christianity? And how do we shepherd people? How do we shepherd our fellow Christians when dear friends, when loved ones uh, fall away and leave the church in favor of vain myths and legalism? If you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time, um, you've likely experienced what Paul is talking about here. Um, you've, you've likely experienced uh, a covenant child who grows up in the church, who, though they went to every youth group, participated in every mission trip, um, ate, you know, spoonfuls of holy mac and cheese at every potluck. Uh, they go off to college and they come back hostile to the gospel. You've likely experienced that. Or maybe you've, maybe not that, maybe you've experienced a new convert, a friend or a neighbor who you've prayed for for ages to come to know the Christ. And, to, you know, to your surprise, praise the Lord, they confess Christ. Hallelujah, they confess Christ and they start coming to church. And you're excited, you see change in their life only months later though you realize they actually are rejecting the gospel and they, they turn away and they follow their previous beliefs. They follow their apathy towards religious things. They, they reject what they had so wholeheartedly accepted. Or maybe even harsher still, you, you might know of a pastor in your life who you've put your trust in, that you've shared your life with, who's counseled you in some of the hardest, time, hardest moments who leaves his family pursues a woman that he'd been seeing on the side. He leaves the church to pursue an adulterous relationship. These are all thieves in doctor's clothing. Paul is kind of making a prophetic statement here. He says at the very beginning of verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says, the Spirit expressly says, this is a, um, a similar, we find a similar form of this in the Old Testament, right? And when we read the prophets, they all kind of all start very similarly. Thus says the Lord. 
As it's very authoritarian. It's a very authoritative, right? Thus says the Lord. There's not much more that like you can't claim much more authority than than saying, "Oh, God says this." And Paul's kind of echoing that that form. That now the Spirit expressly says, "Thus says the Lord." He's saying this is what God has to say on the matter. He's saying this this will happen. People will fall away. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Expect it. This is not outside of God's sovereignty. This is going to happen. So be prepared to offer a response to those who leave the church. Be, be prepared to offer a response to lies and to those who descend to orthodoxy. He then articulates the specific heresy that Timothy is having to deal with here. Um, the specific heresy that he's dealing with is something we've called asceticism. Asceticism, which is basically... Um, the, the belief that if you deny yourself here on earth, for like the more you deny yourself on earth, well, then the more God will bless you in heaven. So that's where we get you know, the monasteries. That's where we get Monty Python's monks who walk around chanting their Gregorian chant and smacking themselves in the face with the wooden boards. That's where we get that. Or the, the, the monasteries where you had um, men who would walk around with their Bibles and they'd read their Bibles and they'd smack themselves um, with whips as soon as they'd lose focus or, or any misstep they would... They would they're basically torturing themselves in hopes that they would gain favor from God. Now, we don't deal with that kind of asceticism anymore, right? Like, we, we don't have to worry about, I don't think we have to worry about anyone in our congregation or our neighbors, like, beating themselves um, to try to earn God's favor. Um, but for t- to us today, um, it might look like legalism. This might take the form of legalism, the form of workspace righteousness. The central idea of both asceticism and legalism is the same. It's saying, hey, grace and love isn't something freely given because of what Christ has done on the cross. Grace and love is given if you do something. You must earn it. That's a lie that, that Paul's, that's the lie that Paul is dealing with. You have to earn your salvation by giving up stuff, by, by being this ascetic person who, who denies your, yourself these good gifts from God in order to earn his grace, to, in order to earn his favor. Here in Timothy, the issues at hand are um, simply bad views concerning marriage and food. It seems like the, like most of the early church stuff revolves around food um, because it was so entrenched in the Jewish culture that like food, some food was good, some food was bad. You can't do it. And so when God kind of opened that door and, and let all food be good again, um, like they, they had a tough time with that. Um, and so the issues at hand were marriage and food. And Paul's response to the nonsense is simple. He says, hey, you don't, you don't garner favor from God by depriving yourself of the very things that God has created to be a blessing to you. You don't garner favor by rejecting good gifts. Think of it this way. Um, we have like two weeks left of Lent, right? Many of you are participating in Lent, and that's awesome. Like, kudos to you. That's a, Lent's a good thing. I'm not bashing Lent in any way, shape, or form. It's a, it's a wise thing to give up something in order to, to reorient your life towards God. Like, that's a good thing. Um, but it's not God's desire, and God does not require, and nor is it his desire, um, that we would live a life of self-deprecation in order to try to earn God's favor. The whole point that we get to celebrate Lent isn't so we earn God's favor, but so that we reorient our lives to follow God. To follow God so that we can, we can be reminded of his goodness in our lives. And that's what we're talking about here. But what Timothy is dealing with is people who are trying to earn God's love, earn grace, something that is freely given to us. Paul knows, uh, as should we, 
um, that anytime we add anything at all to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. Whenever you add anything at all to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. It becomes like the law of old. It becomes a burden that's too heavy for us to bear. And so Paul is dealing with that very, very adamantly here in Timothy. After all, like, what's the answer to that, that first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Most of you know it, I, I believe. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to... Oh, I got a couple mumblers. Man, man's chief end is to... There we go. You're not Presbyterian this morning. You talk. Um, no, it's like, that, that's our thing. Glorify God, but then what? To enjoy him forever. To enjoy him forever. That's the point of this passage. Enjoying God. For those of you who follow you know, the theology of John Piper, he calls this Christian hedonism. Right? Christian hedonism. Enjoying, delighting in God through his creation. John Piper, like, he, that's his whole like, shtick. Enjoy God through his creation. Enjoy the things that God's give you. This is a good thing. Enjoy God through his creation. And what a wonderful reality it is that we have a God who delights in our delight. We have a God who delights in our joy of what he gives us. How many of you are parents? I'm about to be a parent. But I, I imagine it's like being a parent when you're giving a good gift on Christmas. And you get to see your child open that gift for the first time. Paul's dealing with people who basically throw the gift away and play with the little twist ties that lock the gift in the box. Not even the box. Like, you know, kids can have fun with the box, but they're like playing with the twist ties that the boxes that, that like restrain the present itself. God does not want us to forsake the gift in favor of the box or the twist ties. No, he wants us to play with the gift, to play with the toy, to play with what he's given us, to, to enjoy the creation that he gives us. Paul continues, he says, these things are not just to be abstained from, but received with thanksgiving. I don't know if you caught the subtlety of his argument here. He doesn't just make a, a counterpoint. You know, one group of people are saying, hey, if you, if you reject these things, then God will love you more. Paul isn't saying, no, no, enjoy these things and God will love you more. He's not making just a simple counterpoint. He says, don't forsake these things, enjoy these things. God has created the, these things for you. God has created stuff for you. And to reject them is to reject the God who gave them to you. To reject them is like to reject the God who gave them to you. Like that's, that's Paul's argument. It's like the kid, the kid takes that present and throws it in the trash and then complains about whatever you fix them for breakfast on Christmas. Like that's basically what the, the Paul is arguing against. He's saying, enjoy the gifts. Enjoy what God has given you. Take, them, uh, take these created things and rejoice in the giver who gives them to you. So... What do we do with this? How do we apply a first century polemic against asceticism to a 21st century culture that, if we're honest, probably um, deals more with overindulgence? How do, we, how do we rectify those two things? I have three points. I'm kind of cheating because point two has like two subpoints, but three points uh, for you note takers. Uh, point one we must understand that the reality of the church is that we are not perfect. The church is not perfect. We're not perfect individually, and we're not perfect as a community. And Paul's dealing specifically with that second one. We're not perfect as a community. Paul's addressing this ultimate reality for us. Jesus addresses the same reality uh, in the Gospels when he says, uh, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, 
I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Apostasy is a real thing, right? It's throughout the scripture, people leaving the faith. But don't be alarmed. Those who are truly in the faith will not fall away. They will not depart from it. Those who do are just like Dr. John Wilson. Like They don't have the credentials to back it up. They're not truly who they say they are. The gospel calls these people wolves in sheep's clothing. They dress the part, but they ultimately don't have the credentials. And while this may, when you first hear it, seem kind of discouraging, a little disheartening, um, I think this is, a, this is a truth that should be an immense encouragement to us. It should be an immense encouragement to us because basically God is telling us, hey, this is not something new. This is not something foreign. This is not some strange product of American Christianity. This is a part of my mysterious plan to sanctify you. This is a part of my mysterious plan to sanctify my church, to draw you closer to me, to make you more like Christ. When you see, your, when you see people who you thought were your brothers and sisters leave the church, yeah, hey, I know that's going to be disheartening. That's going to be painful. That's going to be hard. But in, in my way, in my time, I'm using this to sanctify you. I'm using this to make you love me more, to make you depend on me more. That is what God is telling us. And that's what Paul is telling us. Say, hey, don't be alarmed. This is part of God's plan. That's a comforting thing to know that God has, has a plan for that. Even though we, it's hard for us to see that sometimes. It should be an immense encouragement to us. To, um, we need to recognize that the problem is not with the stuff. Right? The problem is with us. The problem is in, is in our heart. One of the most misquoted passages of all scripture actually comes from this epistle. Um, you've probably all heard it, 1 Timothy 6.10. Um, you've all heard it quoted at some point. Money is the root of all evil. Um, and as you know, hopefully, that that's, that's not how the verse goes. But the verse is, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And not just the love of money, but the love of money over and above the love of God. You see, the, the nuance here is slight, but it's extremely important for us to understand God's the, or Paul's theology as a whole. Uh, the problem isn't the stuff, even the, the love of stuff, but the love of stuff more than God. The love of money more than God. See, God is the giver of the stuff. He's the giver of the money. And he only gives good gifts. He only gives good gifts. All that we have is a gift from him, and therefore it is good. But because of our short-sightedness, because of the sin in our hearts, uh, it, we, are prevent, we prevent ourselves from seeing that these things, this stuff, this money, whatever it is for you, uh, is meant to glorify God. We're prevented from seeing that, and we try to use it to glorify ourselves. We use it to try to enshrine ourselves on these little thrones of trinkets. And we sit there thinking we're ruling it all as it just kind of fades away. So we need to be aware that that nice house that you have with that perfectly manicured lawn, like, those are, that's a good thing. That's a gift from God. God wants you to enjoy that nice house. Right? You don't need to feel guilty for having a big house. God wants you to enjoy it. And he wants you to use it for his ministry. He wants you to enjoy it, but he also wants you to use it for hospitality. He wants you to enjoy it, but he also wants you to think about, hey, if you have the means, maybe do foster care. If you have the means, maybe you know, fill in the blank. Serve God in some way with the gifts that he's given you. That big paycheck that comes in you know, every week or two weeks or every, once a month. Like, that's a gift from God. You work hard from it, but ultimately, it's a gift from God that he's given you so that you can give abundantly, that you can help others, 
that you can give, you can give from your abundance. That's a gift from God. You don't have to feel guilty about it. You can rejoice in it. That's a good thing. So rejoice in it and give it back to God. Rejoice in the giver more than the, the gift. Now, note takers, this is like 2A, subpoint. There's a little caveat here. Uh, don't hear what I'm saying and think, oh, sweet, this means I can roll a joint. This means I can go out and live a life of sexual promiscuity as long as I thank God for the pleasure. Because after all, God created pot and God created sex, so that means I can just enjoy it, right? That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Like, remember the context in which Paul is dealing with here, right? Paul, Paul is instructing Timothy in what to say to those um, who would like to add unnecessary restrictions to the gospel, who want to add something to the gospel. So he's encouraging them in their Christian liberty. He says, hey, Christ has done so much for you, you have liberty. You don't have to give up these things in order to earn favor from him. Paul also has words concerning those who would overindulge, who would take this passage and kind of run that, that, you know, that, down that rabbit trail of, hey, I guess I can do whatever I want as long as I thank God for it. Paul has words who overindulge as well. Romans 1, 26, he says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Uh, the instruction for those in Romans 1, what they needed is an exhortation to practice wisdom. They had all this stuff. They had all the things. They had the big house and the nice car and the big paycheck, um, but they, were, they weren't using it to turn their joy back to God. They were using it to enshrine themselves. And so he's like, hey, maybe you should give up the stuff. Maybe you should give up the stuff. Avoid that which is tempting you into sin. Avoid it, because if you just kind of go down that rabbit, that rabbit hole, God's going to give you up to the lust of your hearts and impurity, the dishonoring of the bodies among themselves. Like, God's going to, like, there's, there's consequences for loving those things too much. Paul knows that the Christian life is one of balance, of both liberty and wisdom, and that he can say in one breath to those struggling with legalism and a desire to earn their salvation, he can say in one breath, hey, enjoy the liberty you have in Christ. Enjoy it. It's a good thing. But he can also say to those struggling with loving the creation a little too much, he can look at them and say, hey, remember, those things will enslave you, enslave you if you're not careful. Be careful with those things. Because the Christian life is a sensible one. It's a moderate one. Again, note takers, kind of a point two, another little caveat. What about those of you in this room who don't, maybe don't feel the, the need to overindulge because you don't have things to overindulge with, right? You don't have a lot of stuff. You don't, have a, you don't get the big paycheck. You don't have the big house or the fancy car. What about you? What is this passage saying to you? Well, it's screaming at you, hey, things do not satisfy. Things do not satisfy. Don't get caught up in thinking that it will. One extra dollar, 10, 10 square feet more in a house, they're not going to satisfy you. Only Christ satisfies. Only Christ satisfies. Only Christ can can. Open up your life to be free from, from burden. Only Christ can open up your, your heart to, to know that I can enjoy all the things that God gives us. And, and I can enjoy those. And I can, uh, I can have fun with those. And I can delight in those things. But also that those things aren't the ultimate goal of, of my life. And that my ultimate goal is to glorify the, the giver of the gift. And ultimately, that you know, when you get those things, when the, when the nice car comes, when the big house comes, when the big paycheck comes... Um, just know that that comes with a whole other set, set of problems. 
So this, this, this verse, this, this passage, tells us a little bit about both people in, in both extremes. Point three, <clears throat> it's important for us to, as Christians to understand the boundaries of that, kind of furthering the idea here. It's, it's important for us to understand those boundaries, to not operate in extremes, um, and to adjust the way we approach all of life in response to that understanding. It's important for us to, to realize that, to understand the boundaries of Christian liberty and Christian wisdom and to adjust the way we approach life in response to that understanding. About a year ago, an article was published uh, in Psychology Today, uh, and it reads, Our culture valorizes extremes. You can never be too rich or too thin is a persistent message. People are no longer capable of watching just one favorite TV show. They binge watch on whole seasons at a time for going sleep and other basic needs. If you're a real estate junkie, you can gawk at garish celebrity compounds with 21 bathrooms, or you can gawk at 100-square-foot micro-houses. Many people have no problem downing a Hardy's Monster Thick Burger at 1,300 calories, or a Sonic Peanut Butter and Cookie Dough Dream Master Blast at 1,870 calories, so it's almost a full 2,000 calories. Another opposing camp has people who includes those who would recoil in horror at a teaspoon of added sugar or a gram of gluten. Anything that happens today is either super awesome or it's the period, worst period, thing period, ever period. Like chalk it up to common grace that psychology today would kind of land on this truth that is so plainly presented in the gospel, right? That our culture loves extremes. It's either 21 bathrooms or it's 100 square foot micro house. There's no in-between. There's no satisfaction in between. It's you can never be too rich or too thin, is what one says. And the other says, love, your, love who you are even if it's unhealthy. That's, that's the world we live in. That's the culture we live in. And psychology today has kind of landed on that truth. Uh, unfortunately, we can't say the same for our generation's greatest philosopher, uh, Nickelback. Uh, when he sings... Uh, he sings this song, the rock, I Want to Be a Rock Star. He sings, I'm through with standing in lines, the clubs I'm never going to get in. It's like the bottom of the ninth and I'm never going to win. This life hasn't turned out quite the way I want it to be. I want a brand new house on an episode of Cribs and a bathroom I can play baseball in and a king-sized tub big enough for ten plus me. I need a credit card that's got no limit, a big black jet with a bedroom in it, going to join the Mile High Club at 37,000 feet. I want a new tour bus full of old guitars, my own star on Hollywood Boulevard. Somewhere between Cher and James Dean is fine for me. He says, I'm going to trade this life for fortune and fame. I'd even cut my hair and change my name. What a sad, sad way to live. What a sad way to live that he's living his life for, for money, for girls. The song um, keeps going. It's a, like a super long song, um, if you didn't know. Uh, but he goes on to talk about taking pills from a Pez dispenser. He's just living life to, to feel good. He's living life for the stuff. He's like, if I just get that big black jet, I'll be happy. If I just get a Hollywood Boulevard star, I'll, I'll be happy. If I get a credit card that's got no limit because I have so much money. If I, if I can just get on TV because my house is so nice, I can be on Cribs. This is kind of a dated song, but you know. Uh, like, if I can just have so, like, if I just get enough, I'll be happy. And he's realizing towards the end of the song that the ultimate goal of his life is the stuff. He's willing to give up all that he has currently. He's willing to change his very identity. I'd I, I cut my hair and I'd change my name. 
right, for fortune and fame. Like he's willing to change his, his very identity, who he is, to get this stuff, to get these things. And at the end, I think he starts to realize that it's not worth it. At the end of the song, uh, I think he gets a glimpse of just how uh, evil these things are and how they're, they're completely unsatisfied, yeah. unsatisfying. Um, the song ends, and he, he says this, and will hide out in private rooms with the latest dictionary of today's who's who. We'll get you, they'll get that evil smile. Everybody's got a drug dealer on speed dial. He starts to realize through the end of the song that it's, it's evil. It's not satisfying. And he's got, he's got to have a drug dealer on speed dial to cope with the unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory life that he's living in. It's almost like he wrote this song to be an, a sermon illustration. But it's like, that, that's the reality of the world that he's living in. That if, if I just got a little bit more, if I could just escape the pain, then, then maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll make it. Maybe I'll be satisfied. All this stuff, I'll be satisfied. And at the end, at the end of the day, he just realizes, no, I'm not satisfied by all this stuff. The problem that he has is he's exchanged the creator for the creation, the creation for the creator. Sorry, he's exchanged the creation for the creator. The Christian life is not supposed to be one of self-deprivation. We're not supposed to go around like the Monty Python monks and smacking our face with boards or whipping ourselves because we sin, because we mess up, because we stumble. That's not the life that God wants us to live. That's not the, God, that's not the life that God requires, nor is it the one that he desires for us. He wants us to enjoy the gifts, but he wants us to enjoy them in a way that it turn, our joy is always turned back to the giver. He wants us to enjoy the gifts, but he wants us to ultimately enjoy the giver of the gifts. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to turn it back to him because God is the ultimate goal of this stuff. We can sit for hours, we can sit for days and weeks and months and years of our life. We can just sit there and enshrine ourselves in these little thrones of trinkets. We can, we can, we can just enshrine ourselves and, and make, make us think that we have control of our little lives, our little, little spot in the sand. We think we have it all, that we have everything we need to be satisfied, that we're comfortable with where we are. And we tell us ourselves this lie over and over again as these things just kind of melt away as they fade away because they were never meant to satisfy us only God is ever going to satisfy because he's the only one who can he's the only one who's meant to he's the, he's the one who we're created to enjoy God is the ultimate goal of creation so let's rejoice in the blessing that he bestows on us let's rejoice in those blessings those big houses, those big paychecks but let's rejoice more and the giver of those things. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we can come and hear your gospel. Lord, I pray that as we go about our day that we can really take stock of our lives and and see where we just are beating ourselves up because of the blessings that you give us, Lord, and help us to not do that. Lord, help us to enjoy the gifts that you give us. But Lord, also I pray that you don't let those things become like the the things that were in Romans 1, that we, we just are consumed by them. Lord, Lord not, let that not be our story, but let us give back. Let us use those gifts that you've given us to, to glorify you. Help us to see that. Help us to realize that. And help us to, to love you more for all the, the beautiful, wonderful things you've given us. It is in your son's precious and holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.